The Legacy of John Williams. Celebrating the music and the art of Maestro John Williams. Hello and welcome, I am Maurizio Caschetto, editor of The Legacy of John Williams. Today I am here for another installment of the LA Studio Legends series on The Legacy of John Williams podcast. My guest today is a true Hollywood legend. She worked as a singer and a vocal contractor for film, television and the recording industry for decades. Her resume is truly impressive and includes some of the greatest films ever made, like The Sound of Music and Dr. Zhivago and she worked with virtually all the greatest film composers. She also recorded with all-time stars including Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin and Burt Bacharach. She worked with John Williams on numerous films as a singer and on several projects also as a vocal contractor. Please welcome my guest Sally Stevens. Hello Sally, thank you for being here on the Legacy of John Williams podcast. Hi Mauricio, I'm so happy to be here with you. Thank you for the invitation. My own pleasure, really. Um, so, as I always do with my guests, I'll, before jumping into the conversation about your work with John Williams and other great composers that you work with in your astonishing career, I would love to go about a little bit about your musical upbringing, so on, and how you ended up working in the studio environment, and how did you become a musician? Well. I came from a family of musicians. My, my mother was a singer and my father was a singer and my stepfather was a singer. And they all, my, I always love to just throw this comment in. My mother uh, was brought out to Hollywood under contract to MGM, but she, she, and it must've been a very tough thing for her to be disappointed, but she always felt she didn't have the, 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 the confidence and the political skill to be, become the new uh, Jeanette McDonald. But she did get into film scoring, and she was one of the voices on The Wizard of Oz. So, wow. <laughs> um, and so I, I knew that there, growing up, I knew that there was a world of session singers, you know, which it, back in the late 50s and 60s, not everybody knew about. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I studied voice. She was an also a beautiful pianist, and she kind of gave me voice lessons and stuff along the way. But I won a PTA, Parent Teachers Association, a little voice scholarship when I was 14. And I got to study with Alice Mock, who was an opera singer here and who eventually taught voice at USC. And that gave me a, a, the classical training. Um, and then I, after I graduated from high school, I went on to UCLA and studied, uh, was a, uh, music was my major and English theater arts was my secondary major or my minor. But I had, I knew I didn't want to ever teach music. So the degree was, you know, becoming less important to me as I got through the courses of study. Well, very, very early on, I, I did a lot of like songwriter demos and stuff and mm. like obligatos on things. But um, at one point, this was long before Herb Albert and Lou Adler were very famous on their own and had all their accomplishments. They were partners and they were looking for a young artist to sing a song that Herb had written. And a manager took me to see him and they liked what I was doing. And so 
they asked me if I had a song for the backside of the record. That was the 45 records days. Yeah, the B-side. <laughs> the B-side. So I went home and wrote a song and he liked it better than his song. So he asked me to write another song. So we did, we did a, a single on Dot Records and it was released, I think, in 19... Um, I think it was probably released in early 1960 or very late 59. Mm. Um, and that was going into my last year at UCLA, the spring of my junior year, which was the second to last year. I had an opportunity to go on the road with Ray Conniff and be part of the, he, he, he had just come out as an artist himself. He was doing amazing charts with bands and stuff, but so his first concert tour was on the West Coast, and I could do that and, you know, not miss too much of school that that uh, spring semester. And then when the fall semester came, I had an opportunity to do his next tour, which was a 47 one-nighter bus concert tour all over the United States. And it was so it was an, I learned so much, which I realized on the first tour, I learned so much by sitting next to, to Ray on the bus and, and understanding more about the difference between even eighth notes and, and dotted eighth notes, you know, the jazz feel and whatever. And I just, I knew that that was a start for me to get into the business myself. Um, and I was, my stepfather happened to know the, the gentleman who was contracting the choir. So I had a chance to go and audition for that. Mm. Um, it wasn't just getting plugged in, but I did get the job. So that was the kind of the beginning of the professional journey. Given the fact that you grew up in a musical household and your parents also had experiences in the studio environment, I guess that was a clear vision also of your future. So did you want to explore and did you see yourself suit to have a career in the studio environment and for movies and commercials and, and also studio recording in general? Uh, or did you try to pursue a more 
let's say, traditional career as a singer? Yeah, I, I, I think my dream in the beginning, and I continued writing songs all my life, but my, my dream, I believe, was to be an artist and a songwriter, singer. The, and, and I also, I, my first husband and I got married in, on that long 20, 47 one night, I mean, the, the concert tour. So in those days, you come back home and you're a 20 year old wife and you're and then that we had a daughter when I was 21 and um the 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 male female situation in the business was quite different so he was the one who wanted to become Andy Williams and and I uh, kind of had to set my my wishes aside in that direction but I was very very lucky because you know our business I think is is so much uh dependent upon networking and you, you stand next to somebody on a call or on a concert per, that, that thinks you've done a good job. And maybe they get asked by somebody, oh, do you know a good soprano? Or do you know? So that's that's how it began to grow. And when I realized what a gift it was to be a part of the session singing world. And last week, um, Ron Hicklin gave a talk in Palm Springs that my dear friend Jackie and I went down to, to hear. And in the 60s, Ron Hicklin became the guy for vocals in LA and not so much in film, but commercials and records. He was that he's saying for the monkeys, he's, you know, all the pop records. And uh, he did some film scoring we, and we worked on some of those, but so for the sixties and the seventies, he was very much uh, the go-to person for, for pop vocals in LA. And I was very lucky to get connected with him. And I realized what a, a gift that was. And also that if you don't show up on a date, they might find somebody to sub for you that they like better. So you better yeah. darn well show up. <laughs> yes, and do your job very well. Otherwise, <laughs> that, that was uh, you know that was what was going on in the '60s and '70s. And I began to do more film work for. There were still other contractors, but but Ron was the main guy for the you know pop uh, commercial work. Yeah, yeah, and also because of back in the day there was. A huge amount of work, I guess, you know, not just for the pop world in film. And there was also lots of crossover of musicians yeah. who were kind of switching gears. And they were, I mean, I, I talked with other great studio musicians and some of them really went from, you know, a jazz record date. And then suddenly they have a session maybe with John Williams. And then after that, they go playing in a concert. So basically, great. you have to be able to cover the whole <laughs> music spectrum yes, pretty much I, I mean 100% I'm sure you you know about the wrecking crew have you heard about the wrecking crew yeah yeah I know about the wrecking crew of course and uh, it's a phenomenal piece of history I think and I think there there was also a documentary that was done a few years ago but I haven't seen it yet yes it would be interesting for you to see because what you just described is exactly true and there was a core of musicians. The, the basic core, I would say, were, you know, six to eight guys, but it expanded a little bit beyond that. And they literally did everything. At one time at record sessions, you know, we, we'd do a demo session for a commercial, maybe at nine in the morning. And then there'd be a noon sound recording session for Frank Sinatra or Paul Revere and the Raiders. Or and then there might be a film call at seven o'clock that night. And in between there, there might be a quick, let's run over and do, we have to do this for so-and-so. And the, the guys that, that did that were all the, the musicians, I should say, but we, we, we were there by their side, the, the Ron Hickman singers and basically the core that he worked with 
we, we, we were on this in this session with them and everybody recorded at once. There was a vocal booth set aside and the rhythm section and blah, blah, blah. And, and everybody uh, was there and, and they were guys, they, the Wrecking Crew, most of them were very, very skilled musicians. And there was the woman bass player. Uh, she was, she was very, she was unusually the first woman in the rhythm section, you know, with all these guys. And they they realized in the 60s, in the late 50s and the 60s, that their skill went way beyond what the record business was doing. And they could go in and do those one, four, five, one uh, chords, you know. And they they just went after the commercial, the pop music world, and they played on everything. Glenn Campbell, before he became Glenn Campbell, was one of those guys. Mm. But he was not a sight reader. And so Tommy Tedesco would play his part for him on the guitar and he'd get it in a second, in a second, and then he'd make it better. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Th these are the kind of stories I love hearing from you musicians. And, and it's always amusing to 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 hear that. Um, and this also reminds me the, about the, the fact that that was a very special era for for making music. Yes, it was. I mean, of course, you all of you worked a lot, and I'm sure there were also stressful moments and being on the edge, of course. But at the same time, I, you know, talking with many of you, I realized how much enthusiasm and respect there was for for the work of each other. Yeah. And many of your colleagues told me stories about being in awe of the musicians, and, you know, and being the same place in the same studio playing together with some of the of the greats, really. And that was an inspiring um, situation to be in. And I guess that was the same for you as well. Yes. You know, I, I have to tell you, Mauricio, I, I started to uh, get fascinated with photography back about 20 years ago. And um, and I began to do other, I have a photography website with film composers that I, I, I wouldn't do that when I was on a session. Oh, right. And I can remember being not not there to sing. I was there to take pictures you know, when I arranged to do that. Standing in the middle of those orchestras with that sound all around you was, it was as much fun as being there to sing. It really was. <laughs> and, Absolutely. And when I, and when I traveled with Bert, you know, I still have memories of being on that stage with the blue lights shining on us and hearing that sound all around. It's just incredible. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. And, and speaking about that, I, I see that some of your very first credits into the film world were with some incredibly uh, legendary composers like Alfred Newman. You were among the singers on How the West Was Won. <laughs> that was my first, that was my first uh, film score. Wow. Yes, great. And and I, you know, I that literally was my first score. And I didn't know the world. I didn't know what the stage looked like. I didn't. I'd been to radio sessions with my mother a couple of times, but this was a new experience. <laughs> I don't remember too much of the details. I don't remember whether Alfred actually conducted that session or, 
you know, but that was the beginning. And then I worked on Dr. Zhivago and Sound of Music and um, some of <laughs> just a couple of little movies. <laughs> <laughs> and and you know, you were asking about uh, the early training. My my teacher Alice Mock used to get very impatient with me because she was very definitely a classical singer, and she was trying to get me to keep the breath out of the sound, you know. And and as luck would have it. I think the reason I was so successful was because I never let go of that breath sound. Because <laughs> my the early solo stuff I did, like for uh, for Dirty Harry, the film Dirty Harry, Lala Schifrin, yeah, Lala Schifrin, and that that ah that breathy thing, you know, wonderful, uh, yes, was was popular at the time. So I got to do a lot of that, but I still had the shimmery kind of high notes, so I could do the soprano stuff in the choirs. But it's it's interesting how. You know, sometimes your your worst habit is your best gift. <laughs> there's also for musicians the risk of being uh, typecast like actors you know so you basically become famous for for a specific thing that maybe you are very good at and then you're asked over and over and over to do the same thing by by other people by in your case for by other composers so but at the same time i guess the the peculiarity of being a studio musician is also the fact that you have to be ready to do anything in any style at any moment from the get-go uh, so that's pretty much a, a very specific way of being a musician that's so true and in those days you know if, if everything that we did was was union the demos for the jingles were union this record sessions read the sinatra of course stuff was union and the, the film scores have always been union for singers um, and and you, the, the requirements were very professional level. You had to be a good sight reader. You had to be able to adapt. You had to get rid of the vibrato if that wasn't needed or add it if it was. You know, um, there, there, you had to have a lot of flexibility. I think that is true still today in Hollywood, but the, the crossover now uh, between the LA, LA Master Chorale folks and the LA Opera folks. And the, the, there's more of that involvement within the film scoring, which there wasn't so much in the earlier days. Some, but but not so much. Yeah, I guess it's also the same with the orchestra musician, I guess. Uh, you know, my, I spoke with, for example, for Luis de Tullio, who was legendary yeah. first flute for John Williamson and Jerry Goldsmith and many other yeah. greats for, for many, many years. And mm -hmm. she grew up playing in the Los Angeles Philharmonic and the LA field. But at the same time, he started doing session and she became probably the greatest flutist yes. in Hollywood for many years. And, so, and that's uh, fascinating.
let's talk about your work with John Williams. Um, before we started recording, you were saying to me that the first major work you did with him was in 1997 for the movie Amistad, uh, for which you were the vocal contractor for John. But I have your resume in front of me right now, and I see that before Amistad, you actually worked with John on several other movies as a singer, as, as part of the choir, mm -hmm. uh, singing in the soprano section. And I see such titles as Home Alone, Home Alone 2, Jurassic Park, Empire of the Sun, Hook. And some of those scores feature very lovely and very specific writing for, for choir. So I'm interested in your perspective as being a singer as part of those scores. Uh, so what, what do you remember about some of those experiences? Well, Mauricio, once again, I, I should just interject here. I didn't do any contracting. I just sang for the first 25 years in my business. And then at that, at that time, I did have the opportunity to start contracting, which I never wanted to do. I'm in the process of publishing a memoir, and I've gone back through my date books and calendar books and stuff back to 65 and 72. Wow. We only have, yeah, I have the time, the studio place and the name of the contractor, but you never, as just a singer, I never knew until I got there what I was doing. And therefore I don't remember the details. So I'm, I've tried to think back about, uh, I, I believe that Janine Wagner was uh, the contractor on everything that I worked on for John prior to Amistad. And uh, she, she was a wonderful musician and still is. She's got the Wagner ensemble. And I just went to a concert they did at Christmas time uh, and she travels around the world giving concerts but for john i think and he has actually used the master chorale for a couple of projects too so he often needs that classical undercurrent you know um and i i just remember that she was very uh businesslike and he was he was there conducting it was always a joy to sing to his conducting um and he was always so great i'm and before i had any interaction with him i I felt what a, a beautiful, dignified, and gracious man he was. But in terms of the the writing, you know, I was always just focused on the soprano part. Of course, and, yes. And I, 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 it all came together so beautifully. preparing for this conversation with you I went back to listen to some of the choral cues that John wrote for some of those movies that we mentioned before like uh, Hulk or Emperor of the Sun especially mm -hmm. and um, I noticed that the way he writes for choruses is very specific to to 
to himself. I mean, he has his own voice when he writes for choruses, and especially in Empire of the Sun, for example, he writes these beautiful textures, uh, mixing children choruses and women voices, and creating this beautiful, ethereal, almost heavenly texture. And this is something very unique to him, to his own voice. You were saying before that uh, John looks for a very traditional classical sound, so I think that probably he is also looking at the, at the history of great composers writing for choirs. Uh, so I'm interested in your perspective because as a singer, when, you, when you're singing in a chorus, uh, you have to be very careful about your part, but also you have to be very receptive and listen to the people around you. So I'm wondering how that works out when, when you're in a John Williams session. Yes, well, that, that's a wonderful thing to take a look at. Um, it's for me, I, I think there, there are some people that, that can do that more easily because I don't have a big voice and I don't have a vibrato naturally as I sing. I can add one, but I don't have one. Um, but so that that is a very lovely way for me. I, I love doing that stuff because one of the first projects I did with uh, Danny Elfman was Edward Scissorhands. Wow. And, and he used that set. Those vocals are some of the loveliest I've worked on ever. I contracted that choir. It was a 20 voice women's choir and it was blended with a voice, a small voice choir too. And it was that pure straight tone, floaty tone. And I don't know what it is, but it it becomes just ethereal almost. Absolutely, yes. And also I'm reminded of a cue that I listened recently from Hook, where there's this truly wonderful choral moment for, for women voices. And and there's this kind of angelic moment. I think is one of the cues that, that toward the end of the movie when when the mother reu reunites with the, with the two kids that after they are returned from Neverland, and it's absolutely gorgeous, beautiful, very delicate, and and John is always careful not to go too much over the top. Also, it's heartfelt but never too sentimental. It's just poetic, I think.
and I also remember like the uh, Home Alone 2, I had a, just a brief involvement. They, they wanted someone to coach Macaulay Culkin, the, the child actor, because oh, he yeah. was playing in the, in the film. And I don't think I was at the scoring session when he actually did his singing, but I worked with him at the, he, there was, he and his father were staying at the Four Seasons in, in Beverly Hills. And I worked with him a time or two over there. And that's the other side of your legendary, wonderful career in Hollywood, you know, being the vocal coach of so many actors, including some very famous ones. Uh, and that will be the subject of a whole other conversation, I'm sure, another, <laughs> because of yeah. all the stories and anecdotes that you have. But speaking of, of work toward in, in that regard, I mean, a few years ago, I spoke with Senator Crescent, who was a guest on this podcast show, oh, and um, she is another legendary uh, music contractor working in Hollywood, uh, and she worked for so many years with John Williams, and, and she still works for John, uh, even today. Yes. And, you know, working with all the greats. And I realized that there's this legendary female working in the film music business. And on the other side, there's you also. So I'm wondering, was or is being a contractor uh, a job that was more suited for, for female in the film music industry? Or or was that more the result of, of coincidence or just happenstance? I, I think it was a, a, an evolution that, uh, you know, uh, coincidentally, I had dinner with Sandy just two nights ago. Wow. <laughs> and, and she's a, a dear friend and, and an, has had an incredible career. And uh, John and uh, and Steven Spielberg, neither one of them will let her retire, you know. So, <laughs> um, But she, she was, her career started long ago at the time when mostly there were men doing that. And exactly. I did I, Bobby Helfer was the contractor at Universalist. She probably told you all this. Was, A little bit. She was his assistant, more connected with Universal at the time than their projects. Bobby tragically took his own life. I don't know what the year was, but he left a note to the Universal head of Universal Studios asking him, please, to keep Sandy DeCrescent, who had been his assistant, in place, that she knew the musicians, she was doing his job, basically, and Sandy did begin contracting, and she was doing such a, a marvelous job that it grew for her. It expanded. Other uh, other composers wanted to work with her. Other studios, yes. And and at the time, um, you know, Ron Hicklin was the, the vocal contractor more for for the pop stuff, singer stuff. The film contractors at that time, Bill Lee, Thurl Ravenscroft, Johnny Mann. Uh, were were the other vocal contractors that were doing film stuff, but there were also two ladies that started contracting voices in the I, I would say well, uh, Vanjie Carmichael I believe did some of the contracting for Lala Schifrin on projects that I sang on solos. Mm -hmm. So and Jackie Ward was doing contracting. So it was happening, you know, but it bubbled up because of somebody doing a really good job and just having a a, a a connection on that level. But Sandy was the primary contractor in film for quite a long time. Then there were uh, there was a lady named uh, Patty Zanetti who did some film contracting. And Gina uh, Gina Zanetti is, is still involved with with orchestral orchestral contracting now. But I, I don't know that it particularly 
was uh, well now as you know that the town here has changed quite a bit for, for the yes. last 10 years and it's uh the vocal contracting and and musician contracting for a time it, that is changing that's getting back to more uh diversity and and you know uh, but but for a time it became a one-shop operation and the, and the musicians and the singers had never been under one roof under the control of one group yes but that did begin to happen about 10 years ago when sandy retired and mm -hmm. Talking about uh, Amistad that we mentioned before, yes. so let, let, let's illustrate, you know, talk, talk me about how, how it went for you. So how you, did you end up contracting vocals for John for that specific project? Well, that would be great to tell you about. I, I had done a film for Hans Zimmer called The Power of One, which was very, very authentic sounding African music. And um, uh, Lebo Morake, helped Hans on that project. And I think probably a great deal of the music came from Lebo. Mm -hmm. And Lebo also worked on Hans on um, The Lion King later. later. Yes. But uh, because of I had worked on that and I I'd put together the choir with some, uh, there was a small group, maybe five singers or so that were actually were here in town from West Africa that Lebo knew. And we used those people and people from town here also. And I got to conduct a couple of those sessions. It was great fun. Uh, Sandy DeCrescent was aware that I'd been involved with that. And when Amistad came up, she she mentioned to John that, that I might be a good call. It was difficult because um, I had worked for Janine. I knew that she had been his contractor on many, many projects. And I didn't want to intrude in that relationship. And I, and so at first, I, I when I met with John I and, and Stephen, um, I said, I'm, I'm happy to just uh, work with Janine and, you know, make suggestions to her, whatever. And John was very sensitive to that, too. He he said, if you know, if I understand she's your friend and you don't want to hurt that friendship. So Janine and I had a conversation. And as it turned out, her Wagner ensemble had concert commitments in Japan on the same date. So she couldn't even be there to sing with us. Mm -hmm. But so that came together. And then I, I met with John at his studio on the Amblin lot. And in those days, he was still using a moviola, that that great the heavy iron thing that you look yes. at. And with he, actual film, you know, you have to pull yes, you know, the actual yes. film. Yes. <laughs> And he, there was, he, we knew from talking with Stephen, and, and at the time, by the way, there was a great sensitivity to, you know, maybe they, they were speculating, maybe we should use the, uh, the Black Gospel Choir from the AME Church, maybe there should be a Black conductor, and, and all those things were sort of resolved in the conversation because John's music had to, it needed to have an ethnic quality and identification, but there was a classical thing that morphed into John's music, whatever it was. And there needed to be that, that uh, sound and skill and experience too. But there was one cue in particular 
of that was to be a solo vocal cue and it was a heartbreaking scene and john showed me this scene on the moviola in his office there was a young black slave woman wrapped in chains iron chains and she was sitting on the edge of the ship and you could see in her face that she was not this is not where she wanted to be and in slow motion she falls backward into the waves into the sea with these mm -hmm. chains and everything and it was it's a very emotional thing and he needed the voice to be ethnically true and honest but he needed a, a deep and also a quality that was almost bordering on classical So I gathered a lot of demo tapes for him from people here in town, the fine singers, but nothing was quite right. I happened to be in New York for uh, meetings at the AFTRA Health and Retirement Fund as I was a trustee. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll ask this, the Juilliard Music Department if they'd like to have some of their ladies audition. Mm -hmm. We did that, it was great fun for them, but still there was nothing quite right. Then I heard that uh, there was a new or, uh, opera choir person in San Francisco with the opera. And someone suggested I reach out to him because he was bringing in a lot of new people. He recommended to me a young woman named Pamela Dillard. And I called her. She was at that time on a concert tour in Birmingham, Alabama. And, you know, just talking with her on the phone, I had the feeling this was the right person. Mm -hmm. And she sent a, she sent a, a, a little cassette demo that I played for John, and he liked her so much that he wrote two more solo cues for her. Wow. So there were three of those solo vocals that she did. And then the the choir was I, I, it was forty eight voices I believe or fifty two voices I, and the children's choir was the same size. For the children's choir, it was very much a uh, uh, very mixed, very, a lot of as many 
little black kid singers, the children of people that I could find in choirs. And the adult choir was the same. It was a very, uh, a very, it wasn't all black singers, but it, there was a great uh, combination of sound. Yeah. And we, we scored on the Sony scoring stage and uh, with the children's choir, we rehearsed the day before so that the kids could learn the harmonies and stuff. And that was, there were women mixed into that choir too, to help them with their parts. And John was just so, so gracious with everybody, you know, and, uh, but it was a painful film because when you score a film, um, there is this big, big screen on the scoring stage. The conductor is facing the screen. The musicians are facing the conductor, but the choir is off and off to the side mm -hmm. and we can see the screen as well. And there were pa painful moments in that film. Yes. suspect that had it not been such a painful subject it would have been a much bigger film for steven spielberg because it was brilliant i totally agree with you i think amistad is a beautiful film yeah. it's certainly underrated in the canon of, of steven spielberg filmography mm -hmm. um but I, it's bound to be rediscovered by a new audience i think uh, I mean, it's not just because it's a very important subject. I mean, not just for American history, but for the history of the world, I think. Yes. But it's a wonderful cry for freedom. Uh, and you literally see that in one of the my favorite scenes in the movie where the main character, Sinkei, stands up in the courtroom asking and crying for his own freedom and for the freedom of his own people. And it's accompanied by this wonderful choral piece by John, the music stands up together with the character and, and creates this classic, I would say, Spielberg-Williams moment where yes. they are so able to synthesize in a single scene, in a single moment, in a single sequence, all the, the essence of the movie itself.
in addition to the beautiful vocal solos uh, by the mezzo-soprano Pamela Dillard, John wrote some incredible choral pieces, uh, and especially I'm thinking of the piece that uh, accompanies the end credits of the movie, uh, mm-hmm. where we have this huge orchestra together with African percussion and adult and children choirs singing together this wonderful, I would say, hymn of joy, which sounds almost like a liberation, like mm-hmm. a, a song of freedom after such a harrowing story that we experienced through. And I do remember that John used words from a poem by a French writer called Bernard Dadier yeah. from one of his poems that say, dry your tears, Africa, your children are coming back to you. And that is mm-hmm. the basis of the choral uh, singing, which was translated into Mende, uh, which is an African dialect uh, for the chorus. Uh, so did you have to learn a new language? Did you have some assistance in that process? How that went? Yes, there, w- there was a gentleman who was pronouncing for us the words, you know, mm-hmm. and um, that was done throughout whenever the language was used. Yeah. And um, the, the, that end title that you're talking about, I just listened to it the other night, as a matter of fact, and it starts with the solo and then the children's choir comes in and then it builds. incredible and beautiful and the it built to this rejoice rejoicing sound and the and the and the slaves that had been you know going through that process were allowed to go back to their home yes it was, it was very touching Did you, did you record the piece orchestra and choir together in the same room at the same time? I don't think so because the choir was so large, so huge. You know? um, I'm tr- I think with the children, we definitely recorded them separately. We may have done, there was there were a number of sessions on for that project. We might have scored 
sometime with the orchestra and sometime just separately. through the projects you work with John I see also Munich yeah. uh, which was something probably different than, than other things because uh, there's no chorus uh, in that movie but you were vocal contractor uh, for John for that movie what was the, the the brief that John gave you in that occasion John asked me to find a soloist to do the vocal cues. Lizbeth Scott is the singer that did those incredible solos. I gathered some demos for him. That's often what the contractor is asked to do. If there isn't a choir, but you have a, a relationship with a composer who understands that you understand their, their how they need to express things. And he had listened to several singers too, and Lizbeth was just the right one. I, I don't think, for that one, I think he... I sent him Lizbeth pretty quickly and it just was right, you know, and her vocals were, were beautiful. And it was the first session that I also did some photographs of them on uh, while the soloist was working that day. And Stephen was on the scoring stage in tears at the end of each of her vocals. It was so emotional. And I know that the connection for him with music and with John's music is profound.
you did a few movies in that time frame between late 90s early 2000s uh, i see also minority report which is another case i think where there is a, a specific solo vocal there yes that one uh the deborah dietrich was the young lady that i had that john had chosen from the demos she had been a part of an ensemble i wish i could remember what the name of it was but it was they they specialized in east authentic eastern european music sounds mm. they had heard it was like maybe eight ladies or ten ladies and um i uh, obviously the session i thought was went well i was there but i think john might have done some additional solos and i'm I, and that i don't i can't really tell you about because i i'm not certain but I think mm -hmm. that he might have expanded that those vocal cues. And you also did Star Wars, that the one of the recent ones, yes. the Force Awakens. Yes, that that was such fun. Um, I, I've written about that in my memoir because I have a whole chapter about John in the memoir. But <laughs> wow. it's funny. He, he's this he's the sweetest, kindest, gentlest soul. And but he, I, I picked up the phone one night and 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 John said, "Hi, baby. This is John Williams. How many low B flats do you think we could find in town?" And <laughs> and it was as if he was talking to his five year old grandchild. You know, hi, baby. <laughs> Just what he does, and um, he did need he he needed a choir. I think it was twenty four men, but he it was mostly oh this just low deep Russian sound, uh, and we did I did find twenty four low B flats in town, which is <laughs> our end of the spectrum, and they were all thrilled to be there. And then some a couple of those cues were licensed again at the more recent uh, Star Wars that he did that they mm. just used again, but that was fun. And that was actually a lovely experience also for the musicians because I think it was the first time that Star Wars was being recorded in LA instead yeah. of London because you yeah. know it was easier for John to, to stay yeah. there to do yeah. all the music. Uh, so I guess there was a special buzz probably in the air doing that project. I'm sure there was, yeah. There, there For us, we, we did the men's choir separately. There were, uh, yeah, we, it was just the men's choir. And... We did that to track, but I, I am sure that the orchestral sessions were, everyone was giving their heart and soul, so glad that, to, to be doing that with John. Yeah. yeah. I'd love to touch on a couple of things that you did for other composers because I I have some of my personal favorites uh, lined up here. Uh, for example, you work with Jerry Goldsmith 
another yes. legendary composer and um, and you did a beautiful solo on a movie called The Secret of Nim. Yes. And we you sing this wondrous <laughs> lullaby. <laughs> that was really fun. Oh, that was wonderful. I I had only done uh, choral stuff for for Jerry. I don't even remember how that came about. Somebody had recommended me to him, I guess. Um and in the, it was an, it's an animated film, and at one point the the mama rat or the whatever it's a creature sings this lullaby in the film within the film. Paul Williams wrote the lyric, and Paul did the main title that was used here in the states. And as far as I knew, that was the main the end title. But someone reached out to me on YouTube and shared the fact that in Italy my version had been used in the end title. I have to check. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's there. I, I was so wow. great. He sent me a copy of it. I can try to find it for you and send it to you. Yeah, or I think it was Italy. So, so one of the one of the other countries it was used in the end title. Because wow. we, we recorded it. Both Paul and I recorded the end title just so they'd have it. But the primary purpose was in the film. Dream by night, wish by day. Love begins this way Night's a friend with love to send Each new day Bless your heart, bless your soul Let your dreams come true Future songs and flying dreams Wait for you, love it seems, made flying dreams, so hearts could soar. Heaven sent, these wings were meant to prove once more that love is the key. That's a lovely, lovely theme. I know Jerry was known for, you know, his big muscular uh, action music, but he was able to write lovely lyrical music as well. I don't know if you're familiar with one of his later was toward the end of his career at Looney Tunes. Uh, oh Looney yeah, yeah. What's one of the, the last things he did before passing that away? Was, yeah, that was a group of I, I can't remember whether it was six or eight of us, uh, but that was a lot of fun too. And and for that score, uh, I did one solo cue that was supposed to be a theremin, and <laughs> and a colleague was in the booth at the time and and. Uh, heard that they were doing a playback of the theremin or something and he said i don't i don't see a theremin out there where's it <laughs> <laughs> and that's lovely absolutely because that's that's an example of what you're being asked on many occasions to do something out of the ordinary <laughs> yes. no, that was a little out of the ordinary <laughs> 
And and in our email conversation, you also mentioned a movie called Heaven and Earth, uh, a movie by Oliver Stone with a music by the Japanese composer Kitaro. Yes. And you mentioned this uh, score because it contains uh, one of your own personal favorite solos that you recorded. And yeah. it, I, I didn't know that score, so I went to, to listen to that piece, and it's really a gorgeous piece. Another wonderful score where you worked on is uh, with James Horner. Another wonderful, wonderful man, yeah. and I, you know, he, he, I miss him so much. Oh gone, my gone, God. gone too soon. Yes. Uh, he did a wonderful movie with him. You know, you did several with him, but one of my favorites is called Deep Impact, and there's this beautiful choral music at the end. I mean, James, a little bit like John Williams, he loves to write yes. uh, those ethereal celestial <laughs> choruses that accompanies some of his scores.
Yes, I, I worked with James on several uh, films that when Ron Hicklin was contracting for him. And then I got to contract a couple for him also. And, and one of them, again, came about because I had worked on some African music. And um, But the, the one that I especially remember, again, I, Sneakers was an, one of the early things I did. And that was just the two of us. It was Darlene Koldenhoven and I. And it was fun because he used the kind of thing oh it's beautiful yeah. I, I love sneakers <laughs> yeah there are some oh. wonderful textures there especially at the beginning of the movie in the main title you hear this uh, ethereal textures for voices with piano and soprano saxophone by Branford Marcel is just beautiful It was very fun, Darlene and I, and we were there live with the orchestra too. And and for Clute, I was live there with the orchestra. That was very early on for me too. I forget what the year was, but it, it was scary because if I screwed up, they had the whole orchestra had to start going. <laughs> no, but actually it's a, probably it's very different than things are done today. Yeah. Back then it was very, you had to be much more careful to to stay in your way <laughs> around the orchestra, around the soloists, around the, the, the people that were there. I just remember the days and they went, there were decades where it all happened on the stage at once. And it there was a, a spontaneity about it and a sensitivity to when the, when the horn stopped and the voices came in or the strings, it, it was it, it, it was like performing a concert piece almost. Mm -hmm. there, was a, there was a consciousness of the overall sound and, and it could be mixed still. I mean, the, in, later in the bring up those mics or bring up the, but everybody created it together. The emotion of it happened together. And that's a big, uh, that's, that's, that's missing for me a lot of times, you know, it's mm -hmm. in what I hear. And of course the, the style of music is, music has almost become more like sound effects in a lot of situations. Yeah. 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 It's not easy to be, to be musical probably because the movies are asking for very different kind of stuff. But at the same time, I think what you just said is important because music is just not just for musicians. It's not just about playing, but also listening, mm -hmm. listening to yourself, but also to the people you have around you. Yes. And you as a singer, I guess, learned this very early on in your in your life. I mean, but it's so important, I think. And, and what, for example, the music of John Williams bring out to people, you know, he's a really a harbinger for, for, for generations of musicians now, young people who listen to, to Star Wars or other great scores that he did and suddenly decided to that they wanted to be a musician because they heard the, that beautiful music yeah. and that music inspired them to learn to, to play an instrument or to sing, you know, be creative. And this is something that can be achieved only when you have a communal experience with other people. 
Yes, that's true. It's so true. And I, I was just remembering, um, I, I had heard a, a little podcast, I forgot who put it together, but it was, they, they characterized, they dramatized the coming together of John Williams and Stephen Jaws. And, <laughs> and they, had a lot, they had a lot of information, apparently, about the shooting of that film and how in many places it just fell apart and he, the things were breaking and everything, but that Stephen credited the success of that film with John's sound for the shark. <laughs> Just yeah. to notes, but it was all that was <laughs> necessary to make the movie, the movie work. Yeah. I mean, it was incredible. How he came up with that, that sound that. Yeah. Occurred. And also if we think that Jaws is now almost 50 years, it's 1975 and people still loves it and still discovers it. Uh, both the movie and the music. And it also makes you think about how many of the collaborations between John and Stephen are still among us even after so many years. They created something that is has a lasting impact yes. on so many people for so many years. Uh, you have Jaws and then you have Close Encounters, E.T., Indiana Jones, Jurassic Park. Those are kind of things that are staying in people's hearts uh, for a long time and they will probably will stay for, for generations to come. shared a lovely personal story about John Williams on, on your website. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to round up our conversation today, Sally, uh, with this story. And I'd love to, to hear it from, as told by you, from your voice, if you don't mind. Uh, well, I, I hope, you know, as I, as I put that on Facebook, I thought, I hope it's okay for me to share this story because there are some, some sensitivities in it. But there was a film composer named Dominic Frontieri here in town, who was a fine composer. He was head of Paramount Music for a, a short period of time. He was nominated for Oscars and so forth. And he, he gave me my first opportunity to write lyrics for film. It was a film called On Any Sunday. And I wrote the main title and sang the solo and stuff. And uh, shortly, I mean, this, uh, this was probably, I don't know, 10 years later, uh, Dominic was married to Georgia, who became Georgia Frontieri, who was owner of the LA Rams. And there was an issue here in town that, that so I don't remember how it came up, but they were accused of, of selling tickets to games that they had claimed as 
charity contributions, the tickets. Dominic had only been married to her for a year at that time or something. And she had a long history with the Rams and her, the death of her first husband was questionable. But um, anyway, he refused to testify against her and he ended up going to prison for about eight or nine months, I think. And when he came, when he came out of prison, you know, as I said in the little note, LA is not always kind to its own, or Hollywood is not always kind. Uh, nobody would return his calls. Nobody would, and we had always stayed in touch. He ended up shortly thereafter marrying a lovely young woman named Robin, who had been who had worked for Sherry Lansing at Paramount in the, the, receiving the manuscripts that people were submitting for films. A very bright young woman, and she and Dom had four wonderful kids, two boys, two girls. One of the, the boys ended up going to UCLA as, on a scholarship at age 15. He was so smart. But anyway, so, so Robin was very protective of Dom, and they moved to Santa Fe, New Mexico. They had a wonderful life there. I went to visit there several times. With, uh, but she called me uh, in about 2017 or 18, now I'm trying to remember, to tell me that his cancer had come back and that his time was limited. And I was heartbroken. And I and at the same time, I had read an autobiography, a memoir by uh, someone here in town by the name of Artie Kane, who was a wonderful pianist and arranger, composer, uh, who I knew had been had credited his career here with Dom, encouraging him to come out from New York and getting him plugged in. And I asked Robin if it would be all right if I if I shared with Artie so that he could reach out because he'd written about Dom in his, in his memoir. And she said, no, I, I just know. But she said, but John Williams has been in touch all this time. And we've just heard from him a few. And I just, you know, that didn't surprise me one bit. And I, I wrote John a little personal note. Uh, John, I didn't know if he'd ever even get a chance to see it, you know. But I wrote him a letter to tell him about my history with Dom and that uh, how grateful I'd been to him for the lyrics opportunity and that I'd stayed in touch with him and, and that Robin had just shared this information with me. And I said it just it didn't uh, didn't surprise me one bit, but that, uh, but I just had to tell you how special I thought that was. And then uh, a couple of weeks later, this little handwritten note from John arrived that's on my mantle. And I wrote that little story as a, as a part of the series of the mantelpiece stories. I have five stories about some of the little stuff on my mantelpiece. And it was, uh, I can go grab it and read it to you if you like, but I think I, I quoted in the story. Dear Sally, thank you for the sweetest possible note, underline, underline, exclamation point. You are an angel. Embrace it. Uh, how could I not put that out somewhere so I could see it every day? <laughs> it's a treasured item, absolutely, yes. And, and and again, it speaks about you know the man beyond the great composer. Yes. I mean, he's yes. just and and this is something that everyone I spoke to so far told me about his genuinely kind yes. and humble and 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 human. I mean, it's a wonderful human being, and and probably that's how he's able to connect with people through his music because he's able to be so true to himself first yes. and be kind with other people. And, and this comes also in his music. And it sounds true because he's probably feeling that way. And mm -hmm. he, when he writes something that makes you cry is because he's feeling first that way or he 
He wants to make you feel joyful is because he feels joyful. You know, he's true. I know his music sounds sincere because it's probably that's the way he is. And it's, yeah. and it's not just to say something flattering. I guess we are talking yeah. about the essence of music. Yeah, yeah. He, he identifies with the emotions that the that the story involves, that the characters involved, that the tragedies, the happy moments, whatever. And, you know, I, I often think about how heartbreaking it was early in his life to lose his wife, Barbara Ruick, mm. who who was also a, an amazing artist, performer, and actress, singer, and, and, and his two boy, you know, and I know he's he later in life remarried and I hope he's had a wonderful, happy personal life, but those losses, you know, that that's always in the core of your being. Yes, absolutely. You know how, it, how that character feels because you felt it at some point. Exactly. That that's absolutely the, the way it is, I think. And, and this is also the, why I think people are so, you know, so in love with his music and also, you know, it's wonderful to have seen all these tributes that were done for his 90th birthday just a few weeks ago. Mm. And you see the, really the, the, the wash of love from people all around the world, maybe just doing tributes and performing bits of his music. And you realize that what he did isn't just writing beautiful music for great movies. <laughs> he went really beyond that. I think his music will be with us for, for many, many years to come, not just because he's associated with some popular film. Absolutely. I, I think that's his his wish. I I don't know if you saw. I'm sure you did. There was a wonderful long interview article with about him in the uh, New York Times. Recently. Oh, recently, yes, yeah. Uh, and and he was talking. You know, I I it was so delightful to to hear this from John that he because I have felt that there were there were with the heartbreak that many many have suffered in the last two years from the pandemic. There have been gifts on some level. You know, it's helped us get in touch with with uh, something we haven't maybe given the time to or the thought to or and he was talking about his own life and the fact that he's enjoyed walking through the golf course next door or something <laughs> and in the peaceful moments and and maybe doing more classical composing but but just you know slowing down to, to not having the pressure of the assignment so i i'm sure his there will be more music from john and the music that is already with us is going to be yes it will always be in our hearts and it will be in the hearts of billions of people around the world, I'm sure. Sally, really, it was absolutely a pleasure. You know, we shared so many. I guess we could go on for another <laughs> hour, probably talking about stories and wonderful music and wonderful and you know your wonderful career. 
But really, thank you so much for, for the time that you spent with me. Also, let me know about your, your memoir that is coming oh, I, out. It, it's, you know. I would suspect it'll be about three months before, two two or three months before the hard copies are actually out there. But And it's a very small little press in Austin, Texas. But they, they're a good team. They, they We've been back and forth working. And the, the, the book was pretty well ready to go and edited by the time I got it to them. But so we're struggling with the title now. So. <laughs> That's always the last thing, usually. <laughs> the first or the last, usually. <laughs> But that's something absolutely to look forward to, uh, also for for our listeners, because I think that there are many, many, many great stories to you know that awaits us for, to to read in your in your memoir. Uh, Sally, thank you very much again. Thank you so much, Mauricio. It's been a great, great pleasure to talk with you. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye bye. of John Williams.